The uh, message tonight is from Genesis chapter 3. Feel free to uh, read along with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word, how it is true, how it is relevant. We never outgrow it. I pray through your spirit we won't be able to outrun it, escape from it. Lord, my words are death, your words are life, and we need life in this place. So I pray that my words would fall to the ground and that they would blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, let your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever noticed how people love to give sweeping statements, generalizations about what they perceive to be wrong, especially what's wrong with the world? Um, How often have you heard somebody say, Hey, you know what's wrong with this world? And every time it's something different, you know, the, the answers are always different. Maybe it's what's wrong with this world is corrupt governments. What's 
wrong with this world is education. No, it's, it's high taxes. And everybody kind of disagrees, but they all have their own viewpoints that, that something's wrong. At least they agree with that. Something is wrong with this world. G.K. Chesterton was once asked by a student, what is wrong with this world? And he answered, me. Me. And it shocked everyone. When he said, I am what is wrong with this world. And he probably could have added, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. But he said, me. Something is fundamentally wrong with me. I've thought a lot about what we should be teaching in the few weeks that we're doing this series on doctrines that we hold dearly because it's a huge topic. And I, and I thought about jumping over the fall. Um, but so many of our Christian doctrines are based on the fall. And I, w- I was even thinking about our name, Redeemer Community Church, and that redemption has kind of been a theme of this church. What do we want to be redeemed from? What are we declaring redemption from? What's What's wrong? And it seems to me we need to have a good understanding of what we see is wrong with this world if we're going to preach the redemption of this world. And so I thought we needed to take at least a week to look at this. Now, now there's many people, there's many religions and philosophies that believe there actually is nothing wrong with us. Um, For instance, Buddhist. Buddhism believes that the notion of original sin is a terrible mistake. It's actually a great hindrance to people. Uh, It it can kill one's inspiration, destroy one's vision. They believe in something called Tathagata Garba. Just phonetically spell that. Um, it, It means one's basic goodness. That each person is basically good at the core and our life goal is simply we've got to uncover this goodness that's, that's innate in all of us. Islam also rejects the idea of original sin. Most Western Christians don't know this, but, but one of the main reasons that, that um, Muslims reject the gospel is they actually don't see a need for it. They don't see a need for a great sacrifice to cover over this sin. They don't believe in a sin nature. Philosophers have been greatly divided over this notion of original sin. You have Thomas Hobbes, of course, who believed it, um, that uh, we were intensely selfish from birth. And it was the the job of governments or teachers to help control um, all of these selfish egoists. In the 18th century, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, on the other hand, he believed that um, children had this intuitive sense of right and wrong. They were born doing good, and and he he would say that they were noble savages, that they had an innate purity. Then you have John Locke, on the other hand, who said that children are born with no tendencies at all. They can become anything. It's only the people around them who shape their morals. Well, I want us to look at what the Bible says about our condition. Who are we? What, if anything, is wrong with us? And if so, what can save us? Well, let's look at Genesis 3. Uh, The very first verse says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And right off the bat, you get all these questions. Where did the serpent come from? Um, How can it talk? You know, where did evil come from? There's, There's all these questions that merely come. And... 
The author is not interested in answering those questions. This text is not about those. The text isn't about the serpent. It's about us. And that's what he wants us to concentrate on. Is us. We don't know where this serpent came from. It's not really important to this story. What the serpent says is important to the story. He approaches the woman and, and he asks, Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, you've got to understand, this is not a genuine question. He's not being sincere at this point. He's actually scoffing at God's command. Uh, really, he's saying, did God really tell you that you can't eat from any of these trees? Did he really say that? He's mocking this command, and he's mocking the people that would obey such a command. He's snickering at them. And this mocking is still very effective today. You know, most non-Christians that I know of that are hostile to the gospel, they never really ask genuine questions. They really don't want to know what you believe. They don't want to enter into some kind of rational, logical argument. They just want to mock what you believe. They want to mock what I believe. They want to go for the heart, go for the emotion, because that's highly effective in getting people to doubt their faith. You don't honestly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, do you? That's not an argument. That's just some mocking. I mean, you really think the Bible is true? You really believe the Bible is true? That's not an argument. They're mocking, and it's highly effective. We, We often crumble under just such a sneer. We crumble. They're not attacking the logic of your faith. They're not looking for any evidence. They're not interested in any argument you might have. Now, people mock one another when they uh, sit on their self-appointed seat of superiority, which makes this really ironic because the serpent is subordinate to Eve, is subordinate to Adam. And yet, he is mocking them. They should have known better. Eve responds in verse 3 when she says, But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now notice that Eve adds a restriction. And no longer is it you just can't eat from this fruit. You can't even touch it. You can't even touch it. Which shows she is already starting to think of God as being restrictive. That God is holding back on her. And this is something that we certainly have inherited from her. This this sense that God is is a little more restrictive than he actually has shown himself to be. We're prone towards legalism. We're prone towards that law. We want those boundaries. Well, the serpent, when she says that, he sees his opening and now he goes straight forward. Look at verse 4. It says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the serpent now, he, he doesn't, he's not subtle at all. He goes straight for an attack. He, he says, you're not going to die. He attacks God's goodness. God lied to you. And now numerous scholars, they have commented on what the serpent does not attack. 
What he does not attack, he does not attack God's right as a creator to give commands that you should obey. They don't attack that. They don't attack Adam and Eve's faith in God that he exists because they know he exists. They don't attack the fact that God really isn't holy, or he doesn't attack that God isn't really holy because they know that. They know these things. What Satan attacks is God's goodness. He's really not good. He's lying. He can't be trusted. Alan Ross in his commentary says that we find here Satan continually planting the seed that God is holding us back. He's holding us back. And we still believe that lie. Eve, God's lying to you. He's just, he just doesn't want what is best for you. She bought it. We buy it. It's the reason we commit almost every sin. The enemy was going to tell us something, maybe, uh, maybe about marriage. Say, I mean, you, you really, I mean, you're going to obey God. You're not, you, you can only have sex with one woman, your wife, for all of life. Come on. He's holding you back. He's robbing you from joy. Don't let him do that. Or, God wanting to, you to give away your money. Give some to the poor. It's like, don't do that. You worked hard for that money. Hold on to it. Don't let God keep you down. Don't obey some archaic religion. And we still buy into it. We think God's holding us back. He really doesn't want us to be happy. He gives us all these rules that kind of restrain us. The reason we so often sin is because we believe the lie that we'll actually be more happy, more satisfied, more fulfilled if we actually disobey. We don't trust God's goodness. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Look how fast. We're talking about the fall of all of humanity. Look how fast it happens. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband. Just like that. Just like that. Paradise gone. Man's relationship with his creator and with one another destroyed. Now let's, let's take a close look at what exactly this sin is that has doomed mankind. I mean, really, eating from a tree, is it that bad? The sin here is that they wanted to be like God. That's the sin. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. They wanted to, turn, to determine what was right and wrong. They wanted to be their own moral authority. They didn't want to let God be their moral authority. They did not want to acknowledge God as their creator with creator rights over them. They did not want anybody over them. They wanted to be a God unto themselves. And so being made in the image of God, which they were, was not enough. They didn't want to be made in the image of God. They wanted to actually become just like God. And once again, we haven't changed. 
Why do you get so angry at times when things don't work out just the way you planned? You get so angry. It's not working out how I want it to. It's because you think you're God and you can control everything. And that things are supposed to happen this way because you declared it to happen this way. You want to be like God. Let's look at what happens after they sin. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God among the trees of the uh, uh, presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the very first thing that happened is that they knew they were naked. They knew it. And, and so they tried to cover themselves in a pathetic attempt. They, they sew up fig leaves and they put it around them. They're trying to, to cover their shame. They realize now they feel guilt, they feel shame, and, and, and they've got to cover it in front of one another. God's not in the picture. They have to cover themselves, not before God. They're going to hide from God. They're covering themselves from one another. They feel shame when they stand in front of another human now. They feel exposed. A man's been doing this ever since. We don't actually use fig leaves. We use other things, but we, we, we always try to cover ourselves The reason that a lot of you work so hard in your job to try to prove yourself, to try to just show everybody that you're something, why do you do that? Fig leaves. You you want to cover up who you really are. You want people to think really highly of you. That's what you want. One of the reasons that some of you got all A's in school and you couldn't stand to get a B, it would kill you, it would blow your self-esteem. Why? Because those good grades were fig leaves. They were covering you up, making you feel better. Parents, the reason that you want your kids to be perfect in front of other parents, it's fig leaves. Because you feel judged and you feel ashamed if people knew that my kids actually were just as terrible as your kids. It's a projection on me. And so you want them to be absolutely perfect. You don't want people to know who you really are and who your kids are like. No. I mean, the reason some of you have a thousand friends on Facebook. I mean, a thousand. Why? Whoa, that person's got a thousand friends. Fig leaves. I am somebody. <laughs> Ever since Adam and Eve first took that fruit, um, man has been terrified to be known by someone. We've been terrified of somebody knowing us. We feel the guilt, and so we put up barriers. We put up masks. We we put up. Fig leaves. We don't, we don't want to really share our thoughts. I mean, there's a million blogs out there right now. Everybody who blogs is a liar. Everybody. 
They're not showing who they really are. Nobody wants to show who they really are. We haven't done that with our spouses. And we're in this incredible dilemma because I, I think the humans have two basic needs. We want to be known and we want to be loved. Which poses a huge problem because all of you know if somebody really knows me, they won't love me. So I can't let them really know me if I want to be loved. And we see those two things as being completely opposed to one another. I, I can think of one time when, when I was honest, when Lauren told me, like, tell me what's really on your mind. And Dwight, you, you, you reminded me the other day, we, Lauren and I, when we were in college, we went to a Chinese restaurant. I had all day watched kung fu movies with my roommates. All day in college, which is a bad thing to do. And my wife asked me, Penny for your thoughts. And I said, no. <laughs> and she goes, no, really, penny for your thoughts. I said, no again. And she goes, tell me what you're thinking. And I said, I'm thinking I could get my finger, shove it through your eye, hook your, hook your nose, and slam it down on the table. <laughs> I, you asked. <laughs> I would never do that. All, I mean... If she hadn't asked, we would just say, hey, no, nothing. I mean, watch a little basketball, something like that. That's what we do. No, we don't want people to know who we really are. All of y'all comfort my wife. She's an amazing woman. All of our relationships with others have been critically damaged by the fall. Critically damaged. We all cover ourselves. Let's look how God responds. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. So now after covering themselves from one another, they have to hide from God. And here is the amazing thing. God comes looking for them. Not in judgment. He seeks them out. He calls and says, where are you? God knows where they are. He's God. He knows where they are. But he asks, where are you? And what he's doing is he's pursuing a relationship. He's trying to start a conversation with man. And so Adam responds, well, God, I heard you in the garden and I was scared. I love what Martin Luther says about that. He says, but had not Adam heard God's voice before when God commanded him not to eat from the forbidden tree? Why was he not afraid then? But now he is terrified by the rustling of a leaf. Man became terrified of his creator. God responds by saying, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Once again, God knows the answer. He's God. But but what he's doing is he's actually becoming a counselor. He's counseling them. You know what any good counselor does is they just ask questions. They ask questions and they try to draw it out of people because the person confessing their sin is the first step of healing. And so God's trying to bring it out of them. Did you do this? 
Adam, did you do this? And Adam's response is so human. He passes the buck. Look at verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And so he he does confess, but it's only after he says this, "Well, Well, God, you gave me a woman, and that woman gave to me the fruit, and I ate. Right. But, but, I mean, God, really, it goes back to you. It goes back to you. You gave me the woman, she gave me the fruit, and so I ate. So God looks at the woman and says, what is this that you have done? You could actually translate that as, you did what? You did what? Do you have any idea what you just did? That's what you could put in your Bibles. Any idea. And so her first reaction to her sin is to now point fingers to the serpent. He deceived me, and, and then I ate. And what you have to realize is anytime we are confronted with our sin, the first thing we want to do is cover up and never confess. That is our natural instinct. We want to cover it up. We want to pass the buck. We don't want to confess. But God pushes. He pushes. Well, let's look at the result of their sin. Actually, you could say pretty much the world as we know it is the result of their sin. The world as we know it. They're, they're kicked out of the garden. They're put in exile. you got this cherubim with this flaming sword flashing to and fro to, to keep them from coming back in. They no longer have all these fruit trees that they could pick freely from. Now they, they have to go out into this cold, hostile world and they have to work hard for the food. And it's not going to be easy. Work which was initially designed to be a gift from the Lord. It was to be to the glory of God. It was to be enjoyable. Now is sweat, toil. It's a burden. Some of you feel that burden. Thorns, thistles cover the ground as all of creation now falls under this curse. Not just man, all of creation. And we too in this room fall under the curse. We inherited from our first parents their sin nature. And that's why we do the things we do. We're not naturally good. We're naturally inclined to do evil, just like our parents. The only good that we have is good that God has worked in us. Charles Spurgeon, he said that Adam did not break his little finger. Adam broke his neck. And all of his descendants received that same spiritual breaking, death. And contrary to uh, this being a great hindrance, as some religions or psychiatrists, oh my gosh, Psychiatrists, thank you, um, say believing in a sin nature is actually the first step to healing. It is. It at least allows us to understand one another. Because now we understand, you know what? No government, no education, no amount of money is going to fix our problem. You can't, because it's a matter of the heart. We're broken. And it puts us all on the same 
same field. Nobody can exalt themselves above another because we're all depraved. Even though this text here is full of tragedy, we do see hope. God still initiates a relationship with man. Now look at verse 20 and 21. It says, The man called his, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So God takes away their pathetic fig leaves and then he gives them clothes of animal skins. Now two very important things are happening here. For one, God just killed an animal. He just made the first blood sacrifice to clothe them. He doesn't, he, they've got to realize fig, little fig leaves do, does not atone for sin. It takes real life. It takes real blood if you want to be covered. And so he, he meets their spiritual need immediately after they fall. And then he meets their physical need. They're now going into a harsh environment. They're leaving the garden. So right off the bat, God meets their, their spiritual needs and he clothes them and he meets their physical needs. He's still pursuing them. He's still caring for them. But the greatest hope of this text is found in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. This is said to the serpent. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This has often been called by theologians the proto-evangel, the, the first gospels, the first hint of the gospel that we have. And it's here that we get our first little glimpse. It's fuzzy, it's a little blurry, but we get our first glimpse of Jesus, the Son of God who's going to come. God speaks to the serpent and says there's going to be war between your offspring and the woman's offspring, but, but one day somebody's going to come and you're going to strike him, bite him in the heel, but he's going to turn and he's going to stomp you, give you a crushing blow in the head. To see what this means, we've got to fast forward thousands of years from this story. We've got to study another garden, another tree. Actually, all the themes that we find here in this garden in Genesis 3 are found again towards the end of Jesus' life on earth. At this garden, we also find somebody in the midst of toil and sweat. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was so burdened and he was sweating so profusely, it says that he sweat blood. There's also a tree, it's the cross. Uh, for Adam and Eve, the tree was a knowledge of good and evil. For Jesus, it's the cross. And if Adam and Eve had obeyed God concerning the tree, they would not die. But if Jesus obeys God concerning the tree, what happens? Death, not life. For him, obedience means suffering. It means separation. It means taking on the curse. On the cross, we see thorns again. That's the symbol of the, the curse of the entire world. But this time, what is it? It's beaten on his head. As he is lifting, as he is carrying the curse of this world on the cross. Genesis 3.15 speaks of Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who's struck in the heel by the serpent. And as that venom goes in, Jesus in His last act stomps before death. Defeating our enemy. And now through this death, we have access. We have access to God. And our relationship's been restored. The curse that was brought onto us has been broken. Jesus, once again, has opened up Eden to us by going under the sword. That sword that guarded Eden, well, Jesus is described in Isaiah as he was cut off from the living. Cut off. Interesting little tidbit, the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. It describes when Jesus died, it says that the, the temple veil, the curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. We find in 2 Chronicles 3, it describes that curtain, and it says that there was actually cherubim embroidered all in it. Because this was the, it was the barrier to the presence of God. Just as the cherub with the flaming sword was the barrier to the presence of God. It was the barrier to paradise, the barrier to Eden. And when Jesus died, he went under the sword and the curtain was ripped. There is no longer a need to protect that holy place. We have free access. Absolutely free access. It's granted. So when we preach redemption at this church, that's what it means. That all their relationship with one another is fundamentally destroyed. Our relationship with God has been fundamentally destroyed. We inherited that from Adam and Eve. God took on all of that on the cross. For Him, obedience meant death. And now when we look at the cross, it is a tree of life to us. Pray with me. Lord, I ask that You would work deep within us Your Gospel. Deep within us. Jesus, we say thank You. May our entire lives be lived in utter devotion to You. If we obeyed You, we would have received life. But Jesus, You obeyed Your Father and received death. The death we deserved. Thank You. And we pray this in Your name. Amen.